0: As I sat down today to read chapter 4 to you, I was struck by how hard that time in my life was, and how difficult this will be to read and revisit. This is a heavy one, and trigger warning, there's talk about suicide. If you're struggling with thoughts of suicide, call the National Suicide Hotline. Please don't give up. It does get better. Earth, A Love Story, written and read by Robin Lasseter. Chapter 4 I think when you're truly stuck, when you have stood still in the same spot for too long, you throw a grenade in exactly the spot you were standing in, and jump, and pray. It is the momentum of last resort. Renata Adler Or... The naked female body is treated so weirdly in society, it's like people are constantly begging to see it, but once they do, someone's a hoe. Lena Horn. Of course I didn't understand they were gifts, or about the turning of the wheel, or anything about anything at the time. I am raw nerve-sensitive. And just being on this planet is kind of a shock to the system, if you look around long enough. Even the beauty is a shock, and the struggle, and the fear, and the love. It's all just a lot. I didn't have any context for any of it. I left my valley to go to college, because that's what people do, and I got busy learning to be a human in the world. I was busy taking my first class at Colorado State University. I was double majoring in equine science and philosophy, and three times a week sat in a room with a blown apart skeleton of a horse scattered casually about. There was a hoof on a metal tray all alone. There was the skull, eye and earless, connected to the long, snaking vertebrae of the neck, draped limp across a metal rack. And over there, an elegant shoulder blade, solitary. And detached. Then came a complete cadaver, skinned and dried and suspended on meat hooks, all muscle and tendon stretched tight. Next semester, we would learn how to collect, freeze, and store sperm for artificial insemination. Apparently, that was the most lucrative career in the industry of horse, and that's why we were all here, so very concerned with our careers. When, weeks into the course, we finally got to see a real live horse, it was to put a flake of alfalfa, a tub of oats, and a pile of loose dry grass hay in front of a shaggy bay gelding, standing ankle-deep in mud in a tiny pen, and document which he went to first. I was flabbergasted. I could tell you which wild herbs my horses preferred and at what time of year. I knew that they could use their dexterous upper lip, to unweave a single blade of sweet grass from the spines of a prickly pear cactus. I knew that sometimes they went deep into the back canyon to nibble and sift soil in a particular spot, collecting some vital mineral. And I knew that horses want oats, alfalfa, and then grass hay in that order, and we spent a whole hour on it with little notebooks in our hands documenting who knows what. After that, it was back into the sterile classroom to examine a dead body and search for clues about the spirit of this animal. The professors, the system, my classmates, accepted all of this. They took it in stride that these things were the essence of a horse, while my innocence turned bitter and dark. They all seemed so cheerful about it, too. I was furious. Along with the bitterness and rage, a terrifying disillusionment crept in. There was a necessary detachment that my heart refused to accept, and it splintered me again. It wasn't that I was unaware of death. I'd buried tiny birds and mice we'd found outside of their nests and tried to rescue. I'd seen kittens being born, and the ones who inexplicably didn't make it, There was the red calf with a big white M on his forehead we'd named Mickey, rejected by his mother, brought over by the neighbor for us to bottle feed, until one morning we slid open the barn door and he was simply gone. We buried his body in the hillside, my sister and I, and placed heavy rocks over the gravesite so that the coyotes wouldn't scatter the bones. Those deaths were no reason to detach, no reason to reel backwards. No reason to look away, no reason to numb with my third gift, my bend towards obliteration. But this, these dead, hollow horses with no spirits, separated, disconnected, reduced, were something different. I never had a solid plan for my future. I had a vague idea that I'd be a horse trainer, and that this degree in equine science would somehow lead to that. Dropped into this reality where the sacred spark of a horse was completely desecrated, I didn't know where to turn. The world, the real world apparently, with everything and everyone all agreeing that this was the way things were done, was a terrifying, nonsensical carnival of horrors. The most chilling thing about it was that everyone was pretending it wasn't. I slid down into the darkness... I was on my own, an unarmored child unprepared for the danger of the world. The little valley I'd grown up in was a protected paradise. We followed the sun and moon and seasons and knew it was all holy and ordinary. Nature was free of sentiment and not safe, but it didn't pretend to be either. There was an order. There was a rhythm to follow, a way to make sense of things. This new place made no sense to me, and it was a violent shock to my system. I'd expected it to operate by the same unspoken rules, but it did not. When it came to being with other people in the world, I was a frightened, quivering rabbit. Prey, I kept to the shadows. I flailed and fumbled and dashed and hid. I had no boundaries, no protection and it landed me in one perilous experience after another. I learned, through necessity, that particular wheedling skill that allows a woman to survive around dangerous men. I learned to walk a thin line. The world broke my heart over and over, but I didn't yet know enough to let it. Instead, I learned to armor up, and I learned to run. I rebelled against the reality of this place. I would not accept it and go along. I desperately cobbled together a strategy to survive it. I took uppers and drank. I took downers and bumped. Crushed up mini-thins worked just fine and were cheap and legal and in every gas station. I learned that I could skip class to smoke a joint with a blonde-haired skater boy behind the building and that literally no one noticed or cared. I got that lesson, but missed that there was a required math placement test in the main hall at 10:30 a.m. last Saturday, and how the hell did everyone know about that except for me? I learned that I seemed to be the only one questioning what we were all doing here. I learned that I was terrified all the time. I was alone. My parents were confused and angry with my flailing and spinning. My sister was in New Jersey, finishing up her undergraduate degree at Princeton, succeeding as she always has done through grit and ferocity and an unshakable earned confidence that I simply didn't have. And here I was, drinking too much and hitchhiking through town or walking along dark streets, failing all of my classes and dreaming of leaving the planet. I got pregnant and in a blur, there was my father in front of me telling me about birth control and timing, and my mother crying and saying how young I was and that I'd just started my life, and the guy agreeing that it would be for the best if I got an abortion, and me nodding and saying, yes, okay, I agree, that all sounds reasonable. There was a flat, white, rectangular fluorescent light against the ceiling, filled with hundreds of little squares, and I fell into the squares, keeping my eyes up as my legs were lifted into stirrups, and I was like that dead horse in that dead sterile space, and I'd like to say I can't remember it, but I can, and do. The dreams started after that. The dreams that I'd had a baby boy, but left him in a box and he died, or I'd had a baby boy, but when I nursed him, Poison dripped from my nipples and he died. Or sometimes I would remember that I'd had a baby boy and I'd search and search and find him in a cardboard box, pink and fat and healthy, and I'd pick him up. But in response to my touch, he'd waste away to nothing, like sand running through my hands, and become a desiccated shadow of himself. The dreams continued for a decade, but eventually they changed. Sometimes he would come to me as a toddler and was fine and happy. And sometimes he came to me all dressed in white and told me he knew. He came on purpose into me even though he knew, and that it was okay. I never fully let myself off the meat hook, but those dreams comforted me, and eventually I stopped having them. Back then, though... Back in my freshman year of college with the dead horses and dead children, it was all far, far too much for me. It washed over me one night, and I slit my wrists with a piece of broken glass from a vase that I'd smashed to the floor in my dorm room. My roommate, her wall papered with Metallica and Brad Pitt posters, looked at me with wide eyes and a tight mouth as I reached down and grabbed the biggest shard I could see. I ran out the door and down the beige metal echoey stairwell to the huge dark spruce tree just outside. I got onto my hands and knees and pushed my way back through the outer branches until I arrived at the center, sheltered and hidden. I leaned against the rough, sappy trunk and felt the little curls of bark digging into my back. For a second I blinked into remembrance. Those little shards of bark poking me awake. I blinked my eyes and looked around me. I took big, shuddering breaths. I frantically scanned my mind for what was real in my life, what in the world was real, searching for a place I could be safe, and found only careers and status and money and shiny cars and sleek buildings and simulacrums and facades, and everywhere I looked, there was just a giant machine. There were only rolling, grinding gears with rolling, grinding cogs, and I was being eviscerated in them, and there was nowhere safe for me to be. There was no safety here. There was no clean, fresh morning here. My childhood was a fantasy. I was a fantasy. This was the real world. I looked down at my fluttering blue vein, I pressed the shard of glass directly onto it, and sliced as deep as I could. Its resistance surprised me. I sliced again, and again. I watched the cuts well up, and watched the blood drip onto the earth between my feet. I thought about that blood seeping down and down, and how tiny mycelium would find minuscule bits of me and then I would be taken, one cell at a time, to the tiny, reaching capillary roots of the tree. In a little marching line, the little cells of me would be drawn along, mixed with nutrients and water, pulled up and up through the trunk, and up higher still until they reached the very tip of a dark, shiny, blue-green needle, and then maybe eventually the sun would touch them and I would turn into something else, and dissolve into the ether, and away from this place. Some of me went down into the earth, but most of me stayed slumped there on the ground. I couldn't or wouldn't go deep enough, and finally I exhausted myself, crawled out from under the tree, dragged my body back up the metal stairs, and then into the bathroom, to wash the blood off my arms and down the steel drain while the girls in my dorm stared in at me like I walked out of a horror film. I didn't blame them, and I didn't care. I wrapped thin, brown, rough paper towels around my wrists and got into bed. I woke up to stained white sheets and sunlight and a flurry of bloody cuts like a pile of delicate red willow twigs on a snowy background. I got up and went to philosophy class, the only class I went to anymore and only because the teacher was a big bear of a man who told us about Nietzsche who said God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? At least he was talking about life like it was a real thing. So I showed up for his class and listened numbly, and I saw a girl see my little twigs. I gently pulled my sweater down to hide them, the fabric catching on the hard, dried droplets and scabs. She handed me a note saying her wrists used to look like that, and I could call her if I wanted to talk. In response, I never went back to that class, or to any class again. I dyed my sweet strawberry blonde hair, a deep dark red, and spent my time chain-smoking in all-night restaurants. I didn't recognize myself. I forgot about the magic and the sunrises and the red-winged blackbirds and the bees. A letter from my sister arrived into my shadow world. She had been dreaming of me. I was trapped in a filthy bed with snakes writhing from my head, darkness all around. Was I okay? I wrote back that I was juggling three men who were all in love with me and everything was great. I sealed the envelope and put a stamp on it and took it down to the mailbox on the corner and brought myself back to my dorm room. Back to my bed where I'd been for a week, back to my writhing darkness. I wondered why life was so hard for me, so confusing and dramatic why I was failing so spectacularly, alone with my shame and my exhaustion and my inability to accept the world as it was. Faced with the choice of failing all my classes or dropping out of school altogether, I packed up and ran. For the next many years, my life was a wild pinwheel of experiences and never settling long enough for me to make sense of any of them. I moved to Seattle where I saw gorgeous, delicate, shiny, thousand-dollar silver dresses sparkling on beautiful live mannequins, elegantly posing in storefronts. On the sidewalk in front of them, a homeless family slept in a pile, pulled up against the building as tightly as possible to avoid the hurried strides of men in suits who didn't even toss them a glance. I left Seattle to live in a commune in Florida where I weeded a garden in exchange for food. The sun burned the back of my neck and a tiny, bright black frog with neon yellow stripes on his burbling throat looked at me from between the heads of lettuce. Me and Nala, a former stripper, all curves and sweet cream coffee skin, ran naked down the beach every morning, kicked up brown sugar sand sticking to the backs of our legs. We would dive and gasp and squeal into the cold Atlantic Ocean, and on the way back check on the sea turtle who was digging her nest next to the faded wooden boardwalk. Before long, the men in the commune started to notice me and started to give me advice, took me under their wing. I walked in on them one day talking about me, arguing about I don't even know what, but I knew what it felt like to be prey and somehow my presence was going to be an issue here. I could feel it. To escape the building tension, I booked a flight home for Christmas. On the way to pick up the ticket from a travel agent in those days, I was staring out at the ocean and crashed my car. It snapped something in me, and I knew I had to get out. I left the commune and drove back across the country, back home to a frozen forest and stream and a stark, black-and-white winter valley that no longer welcomed me. My parents were on their own journey, traveling, and I stayed there until spring, caretaking my childhood home. I couldn't start the tractor, and the snow piled up on the long driveway. I walked the last half-mile in the dark every night, to arrive in a silent, cold house and light a fire with shaking, numb fingers. What had been bright and rich and verdant was now gloomy, grey, and full of ghosts. I left my home again to live in a city and get a job and try to be normal. I rented a small house in a not great part of town and woke up to gunshots and screaming. I bought big floppy pads of drawing paper and pressed oil pastels into them for hours laying deep blue next to black, next to red, with a shock of buzzing white-yellow in the center of it all, losing myself in the spaces where the colors met, trying to find resolution at that irresolvable conflux. I isolated and didn't see anyone for days. I drank bottles of cheap red wine. I let the dishes pile up and forgot to pay my light bill or take out the trash. I pulled myself into bed late every night, my fingers stained blue. My boss came on to me, a guy who'd known me and my family since I was 12 years old. He told all of his doctor colleagues that I was the Marilyn Monroe of the office and told me to relax while he pinched my nipple and stroked my cheek. I left my job and the city and stayed with a woman, a priestess, a psychic who walked between worlds and she taught me to call in the rain and smoke clove cigarettes and belly dance in ethereal veils until one night her boyfriend came into my bedroom and sat down and put his hand on my leg. He told me that my friend, the priestess, told him that she wanted me and him to be together. I pulled my knees back against my chest and wrapped my arms around them and got wide-eyed, and just then my friend burst into the room and screamed at the guy and kicked him out and crossed one arm against her chest and smoked a black cigarette with shaking fingers and glared at me. And the next day I packed all of my things and drove away. Somewhere during all of this I met my future ex-husband and we got married in an ancient stone circle in Scotland where I carefully worded my vows. I promise to always honor love because holy shit you should really watch what you say in an ancient stone circle in Scotland. My father cried and tied our clasped hands together and we tromped back through the wet fields and over the stone fence and got drunk on Guinness in a warm little pub and passed out without consummating our union. We bought a house together and drank too much and fought and stayed up too late and I started to dream of spiders every night. During this time was the first time my North Star visited my adult self. It was a singular experience that happened in isolation. There were no dreams, or beings, or any of the other things that would come later. There was just this bizarre experience, and once it was done, I jumped up and wrote it all in detail in my journal, and made myself a promise that no matter what, I wouldn't pretend it didn't happen, or let it fade away with time, or try to explain it away as a dream. My ex-husband and I were struggling, of course. We're very different people, I'm 25 years old and he's 10 years older than that, and we're trying, but it's all a blur from the booze and everything else. A guy I knew from high school who'd treated me like a buddy, but liked to have sex with me, and that was fine because I only ever thought, someday he'll be my boyfriend, until he got back together with his girlfriend, showed up in town. I hadn't seen him since high school, and so we hung out together to catch up. Just for one day, nothing happened. I was very married and very aware of it, but he came on really strong and told me that we had this right as autonomous beings to have our own lives regardless of our other vows, and I was intrigued because I was boundaryless and he was giving me so much attention. But eventually I stuck my will in place and he left and that was that. Except it wasn't, because that night... Laying in bed next to my husband, I can't get this other guy off my mind. I'm tossing and turning and feeling really annoyed that I can't stop thinking about him. It's one of those nights when insomnia just takes over and I'm not even trying to sleep. I'm just trying to get him out of my head, but it's like I'm being pestered by his energy. I decide to meditate to try to clear my mind and let it go. The instant I close my eyes to meditate, it's like I'm in a split screen. To my right, my husband is sleeping next to me. I can see the bedroom and the blankets and the window and my arm. To my left is this guy from high school. I can see his guitar leaning against the wall and a small pile of his clothes in the corner and feel his bare arm next to me. I am literally, physically, sensorially in both places at once. Before I can really understand and anchor what's happening, My husband rolls over and presses his palm hard against my forehead and snaps. I don't like that dream you're having. I am sucked fully back into my bedroom and my body and my stomach is cold and fluttering and my heart is beating hard. I lay there for a second and finally whisper, What did you say? There is no response and I realize he's still asleep and has been asleep through the whole thing. And I gently pull his hand off of my forehead and slide out from under his arm and go straight to the living room and write it all down and make the aforementioned promises to never forget or talk myself out of the actuality of it. It was one of those moments where reality shifts just slightly, but enough to realize that there's something else going on here. This happened, as I said, well into the time when the marriage was pretty rocky, And I wasn't kidding about dreaming of spiders. I had this recurring dream. Black, shiny spiders of all sizes in every room of our house. Nests of hundreds of tiny spiders spilling from the cracks between the floor and the wall. And big, fist-sized spiders shoved back into corners between the wall and the ceiling, their webs stretching across the room. And in the basement back behind the old coal chute tucked into the darkness the biggest spider of all as big as a nightmare pulsing and clicking and dripping poison from her fangs and waiting it wasn't long after that I jumped and prayed and left my marriage and after a while I found myself sober in my late 20s living alone in northern New Mexico I had a new relationship and blew it up and another, and blew that one up too. Finally, I stopped and took a breath. Throughout this entire part of my life, from leaving the valley, through college, through my marriage, through the moves and the spinning inside of the kaleidoscope of experiences, the time of not having any boundaries or perspective, it was also the time of ignorance as bliss. It was all alive and dramatic and important. For how many years did I drink myself to sleep at night and wake up to meditate, trying so hard to be still that I'd forget to breathe and clutch onto any small moment where my mind wasn't galloping through all of my shame. I explored yoga and sun gazing and oil pulling and holotropic breathwork and smoked a pack of Marlboros a day. I read books about spirituality and Buddhism, and adopted an idea of purity, and worked on murdering my ego. I judged anything that wasn't aligned with that purity, with that high, clean spirituality, so I hid the part of me that wasn't that, the smoking a pack a day and drinking myself to sleep part. My family didn't know. Most of my friends didn't know. Only some friends, others who were good at keeping secrets or men who had a vested interest in keeping me a secret altogether. A relentless push and pull kept me on the move. There was nowhere to rest. There was a life and death quality to it, sometimes because it was actually life and death, but often it just felt that way. It was dangerous and thrilling, and I was the queen of getting in under the wire, or getting out in the nick of time. I was dying and resurrecting myself over and over. I was both terrified and fearless because from where I stood I had nothing to lose. I took risks, jumped off cliffs, literal and metaphorical, and fell in and out of love, reckless, careless. There was no restriction. There was no editing. My life was wild and messy and painful and exhilarating and I was fully inside of it. Every time some situation would become unbearable, I ran. And unexpectedly, in the chaos, I began to notice a pattern. Every time I took a wild leap of faith, I would be caught. If I finally got the courage to leave a bad relationship, or quit a job, or move to a new town, I would go through a set of experiences that was becoming predictable there emerged a sensation that I was being watched. When I was at my most vulnerable, my most frightened, backed up against the wall, having trapped myself once again in some impossible situation, I would finally have no choice but to surrender to the reality before me and face the music. When I stopped my desperate grasping and let whatever needed to die, die, my deepest fear became dead ash fluttering away a paper tiger immolated, help arrived, and a way out appeared. It felt like the world was responding to my engagement with it. I could free myself by facing the thing that scared me, whatever it was that I was avoiding, and stepping onto a new path. Once I learned this trick, it was everywhere. I read Young and Rumi and The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell and discovered the world's collective monomyth. I saw it reflected in every movie and every book, all of the stories that we've told ourselves throughout all of humanity. I began to see that the world and experience are actually neutral. It is the meaning I put onto it that made it this or that. I was learning to tell a story about my life. I made meaning out of the chaos. It was thrilling to find a pattern, a way to survive it all. It made me feel the good and worthy part of myself again. I mustered my courage, took a leap of faith, and my life magically transformed around me. Me and life, we were in this together, and I began to trust it like I had trusted nature as a child. It could be ruthless, but also beautiful and transcendent. Above all, I was starting to fan a small flame of hope. I was beginning to hope for a truth. Life as a communion. In line with my third gift, I became addicted to the free fall. I became enthralled with the sensation of pulling the rug out from under myself and of being caught. I burned down my life over and over and then got high on the magic and synchronicity that happened in response. I was proving to myself that I was safe, even in this unsafe place. I got to write the story of my life. It wasn't happening to me. It was happening for me. In my little house in northern New Mexico, single and alone for the first time in a long time, I inhaled and I exhaled and stopped running for a moment. The world slowed down. I know now, with the benefits of lots of time and therapy, why it felt that way. I understand why I felt lost and anxious and afraid in relationships. And why, when I let myself be alone, I started to notice my own world and life, and stopped scattering myself to the four winds. I didn't have that perspective then. What I had was a coming home to myself returning to some essential piece of me that i had forgotten existed. I notice the mornings again, streaming into my bedroom window, the sun lighting up golden wisps of clouds, caught on the cliff edges of Johnson Mesa to the east. I glory in stretching awake, alone in my big, clean, king-sized bed. I tuck myself into a chair on my front porch, and pull my knees up against the cold morning. With a mug of hot coffee in my hands, I pick my two favorite mesas from the expansive view to the south, Eagle Tail and Tanaha. Eagle Tail is a long, triangular-shaped shelf of land with a cliff edge along the lower rim, making it resemble a fanned-out, feathered tail. Tanaha means water jar, and looks like a bulbous clay pot half-submerged in the ground, calling to mind the people who used to inhabit this land. I can't choose which one I like best, so title them co-favorites and give them equal affection. Between me and the mesas is a big, vast sky full of those Georgia O'Keeffe clouds that only happen in the southwest. A thick fog rolls in sometimes, magic to have fog here in the windy scrublands, and then freezes, outlining every blade of grass and twig coating the strands of barbed wire and each hair on my horse's shaggy winter coat so that she looks like she's wearing a fuzzy white blanket. Behind me, the flatland rises into mesas and the grass and sage give way to pinion and juniper forests, and then higher up to ponderosas and even some fir and spruce tucked here and there in the cool, dark folds on the north-facing slopes. In the summer, at midnight, A mockingbird sits outside my bedroom window, cycling through the dozen songs he's stolen from other birds, loud, insistent, calling for a mate and keeping me from sleep. I love him anyway. I plant a garden, I get chickens, I catch my own wild hive of bees, I spend hours walking through the grasslands over my mesas and rest in the shade of high ponderosas that feel like wise, steady teachers gently swaying above me. I find my connection to nature again and fall into that rhythm and let it carry me along. I need a good job and apply for a position as practice manager for a prominent surgeon doing transgender surgery just over the state line in Trinidad, Colorado, During my interview, she asks me how I feel, in general, about transgender people. I pause and search my mind for a reply. I have a very distinct feeling of not finding a filter. I'm looking for some opinion I have, while also trying to think of a good answer from the perspective of myself as a job seeker, but I come up blank. I finally settle on, I don't know, I think of them just as I think of all people, I suppose. I don't see any difference. I'm not trying to pretend to be blind to the truth of their experience, certainly different than mine, but I truly can't find any particular way I think about it. It is a significant moment because it's odd. It's like looking through an open window, expecting to see the glass or the screen, trying to see it, trying to find the filter, and it's just not there. In Trinidad, Colorado... Known then as the now-un-PC, sex-change capital of the world, Dr. Biber did over 5,000 gender-affirming surgeries, starting in the late 1960s, and also made house calls for sore throats and broken arms, and delivered babies and was the town's general surgeon. For those of us who grew up around there, it wasn't that remarkable. But a constant stream of media comes into Trinidad to interview my boss, the woman that Dr. Biber trained to perform this surgery and continue his legacy after his retirement. National Geographic, Discovery, CNN, NBC, Oprah, the BBC, and on and on, came to visit our little town and the surgical practice that I managed. For the next 15 years, this job remains the backdrop and constant as I navigate everything else that happens in my life. It is my anchor, and a huge amount of my daily energy goes towards maintaining it. I work 60-hour weeks, I am the after-hours on-call person, and in 15 years have been unavailable to answer calls for a total of four days. I went on a raft trip. When I got back I had 30 messages and 700 emails so I stopped going on raft trips. When this surgeon moved from my little hometown in Colorado to the Bay Area in California, I continued to work remotely, managing her practice and employees and schedule and media appearances, and continuing to work with patients and hear their stories. As of today, I've guided over 2,500 patients through their pre- and post-op experiences. Beyond giving me the opportunity to live in different places and have a vehicle to be of service, and to support myself financially, the tapestry of this career has provided me with immeasurable gifts. What I've learned from our transgender patients, from this surgeon, and from the women who travel from all over the world to undergo clitoral restoration surgery, a procedure innovated by my boss and provided pro bono for women who are victims of female genital mutilation, can be distilled down to a single, resonant, ideal. Conviction. Early on in my career, it was broadly assumed by mass culture that for both groups, transgender patients and FGM victims, the struggle was simply, two-dimensionally, about sex. The truth is much more profound. Their struggle is about identity and claiming it. They are seeking a unity... A wholeness, just another reflection of the union that we all seek. I don't claim to have any first-hand knowledge of the lived experiences of any of these individuals, but I have been adjacent to their journeys toward aligning their external physical expression more fully with their internal known selves. My nearness to them has gifted me with a blueprint of courage. How it manifests, what it takes, what is grieved, what is gained, and what is celebrated in the pursuit of authenticity. Through witnessing their journeys, I have been inspired to claim my own truth. As I'm going through all of the experiences moving forward, I'm also running this business and spending most of my energy navigating my career and the surgeon's eventual move out of Colorado to California, which is when I begin to work remotely. That's how I end up in Hawaii and New Mexico and Colorado back and forth and coming and going as my life and my three gifts are playing out around and through me. The whole time I have a constant barometer, a constant measure of what it takes to live in authenticity, to answer my soul's call and go through hell and high water to get there. In short, these brave souls prepare me to eventually come out of my own closet. The experiencer, E.T., UFO, weird, wild, other, closet. I watch and I learn, and I gather the courage to step into my own truth. For now though, in the early aughts, I'm in my home in northern New Mexico and it is a sanctuary for me, peaceful and full of light. I'm starting this new career and keeping myself on track, enjoying my solitude and spending weekends sleeping in and hiking and working in my garden. Loving on my chickens and horse and enjoying the ease. For the first time in my life, I feel like I have it pretty figured out. Maybe it's because I'm cultivating this space around me, connected again to the natural world. Or maybe it's because I'm sober and single for the first time in about 10 years. I'm connected to the things that are important to me, and my life is starting to feel settled and quiet. Maybe the chaos and unknown are behind me, Maybe everything will be okay now. Maybe I can relax. Maybe I can be a normal person. Maybe not. For more information, visit honeyheart.org.